Turn with me, please, this morning to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, towards the back of the New Testament. And if you would find with me verse 11, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, and we'll read through to verse 14 as we introduce our subject for today. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, the Apostle Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Let me read verse 14 again who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Understanding that we are Christ's glorious possession, firstly through creation and then by means of redemption, is a critical truth that we must apprehend and comprehend if we're going to fulfill our purpose in this life. In other words, he made us by means of creation and he bought us by means of redemption. We are twice his. In fact, a wonderful little illustration I came across during the week helps us perhaps identify this in a special way. Tom carried his new boat to the edge of the river. He carefully placed it in the water and slowly let out the string. How smoothly the boat sailed. Tom sat in the warm sunshine admiring the little boat that he had built. Suddenly a strong current caught the boat. Tom tried to pull it back to shore but the string broke and the little boat raced downstream. Tom ran along the sandy shore as fast as he could, but his little boat soon slipped out of sight. All afternoon long, he searched for the boat. Finally, when it was too dark to look any longer, Tom sadly went home. A few days later, on the way home from school, Tom spotted a boat just like his in a store window. When he got closer, he could see, sure enough, it was his. Tom hurried to the store manager. Sir, that's my boat in your window. I made it. Sorry, son, but someone else brought it in this morning. If you want it, you'll have to buy it for $1. Tom ran home and counted all his money, exactly $1. When he reached the store, he rushed to the counter. Here's the money for my boat. As he left the store, Tom hugged his boat and said, Now you're twice mine. First I made you, and now I bought you. Christian, in this message this morning... We're going to look at the subject of redemption. And it has been my hope and prayer throughout the week that our hearts will be ignited with a fresh passion to live in accordance with this grand reality. Last year, I started a mini-series and 
It's been some time since we have picked it up, but this morning I'm going to preach a message entitled A Glossary of Glorious Terms, Part 6. One to go after this, and it's on the subject of redemption. Redemption. Lord, I bow before you again this morning, uh, asking once more that you would help me, that you would uh, cause these, my listeners, this audience of people, uh, Lord, to comprehend that which is spoken. Uh, Lord, uh, that you would help me to be simple in all that I say, uh, to the point, uh, helpful, encouraging, and that the Spirit of God would use uh, the passages, the texts, the words that we will look up, that we will hear together uh, in a great way in our lives as we understand that, oh Lord, what this concept of redemption is, it's not just just another word. It's a term that is filled with such great weight. Help us to understand that, not just logically, intellectually, or in an educational framework, but help us to understand it spiritually and biblically, and then make application, I pray, in Jesus' name. Let's begin, first of all, as we look at this subject of redemption by the definition of redemption. Let me define this term for you today. In essence, what I'm asking is, what does redemption mean? What does it mean? Well, before I give you the definition, let me tell you about the importance of this word. This word redemption carries incalculable weight. Especially when it is used in context of Christ's sacrifice and his salvation that he procured for us. So precious is this word that as men would stand behind a pulpit in ages and eras gone by and they would come across this word who gave himself to redeem us, their lips would begin to quiver and their eyes would begin to shed with tears because they understood in a much greater way than perhaps we do what this word redemption meant. And as I read this week, some of these Puritan writers, boy, they had an understanding we don't have. We don't necessarily agree with absolutely everything they taught, but we do know this. They got something about the gospel that we don't see today so that their eyes would light up or their faces would be filled with tears when they come across words like redemption, propitiation, atonement. Oh, that God would grant us that kind of insight into the word, that the very word itself would conjure up in our minds the picture of what is meant by the apostle when he writes it. It's such an important word. So to define it this morning, let me just say this. Redemption literally means a loosing away, a loosing away. It's a liberation. It's a release or a freedom. This loosing is enabled upon receipt of payment or ransom. It is used almost um, fully in the sense of payment made for the loosing of something or someone. Historically, not just in a biblical context, but historically this word is used in reference of freeing prisoners of war, slaves, criminals who are condemned to death. And the transaction whereby one could be released required payment in the form of money or land or a sacrifice or the life of another as a substitute. 
As you go through your Bible from start to finish, redemption is a word that is used very often and in many contexts. It speaks of Israel being redeemed from slavery from Egypt in Exodus 6 and verse 6. It's used about redemption in relationship to the firstborn who uh, on when they were born, something had to die to sanctify them. The firstborn of a donkey required some sort of a lamb to die. The firstborn of a child required some sort of an animal to die to sanctify that unto the Lord in the Old Testament Levitical law. Then there's the redemption of the land in Leviticus 25. There's the redemption of the nation of Israel by God and many, many other places that deal with redemption in the scriptures. But we know, don't we? We know this morning that the fullest meaning and the central pivot upon which everything else turns in relationship to redemption is the atoning work of Jesus Christ as the price paid for man's freedom from sin's enslavement. And this is to be our focus for the message today the definition of redemption i don't think it needs a whole lot more information for us to understand this we're going to have some more as we go so let me move to point two the definition of redemption now let's talk about more importantly the necessity of redemption in this second point i'm asking this question why is redemption required why Now, this is not here in my notes, but I just want to preface this point by saying I may upset you this morning. That's not my intention to upset you. I may make you feel bad. That is my intention. Okay. in this next point, my intention is for you to understand why redemption is necessary. One subject that most people do not want to talk about is the subject of sin. One cannot understand the glory of redemption until they are confronted with the reason why it was necessary. Now, it is my firm belief, it is my contention that the reason why redemption has not caused all of us, myself, our faces to be filled with tears and perhaps be thrown upon the ground in absolute awe and reverence to God is because we don't realize how great a tragedy our sin is and the necessity of redemption. I'm convinced that today's Christianity is this lukewarm, uh, apathetic concept of the fact that Jesus came and did some great work and we're thankful for it, but we don't really understand why and what the reason for it is. And I believe that it is the avoidance of this biblical topic of sin that has led to the widespread moral decline seen in society today and worse The devaluation of the gospel in the church of Jesus Christ. What have we done? What have we done? And for this reason this morning, I'm going to devote some time to understanding the depravity of sin and the wretchedness of man. Nobody's left yet. That's good. You know, it was not that long ago, church, that Christians had a holy hatred for sin. A divine disgust for iniquity. A righteous abhorrence towards all that defies God's sacred character. It wasn't that long ago. Let me read you 
something that the Puritan Thomas Watson wrote. See the difference between the godly and the wicked. The heart of the godly is a temple. The heart of the wicked is a dunghill, a cage of unclean birds. His mind is the devil's mint. He is continually minting unchaste, impure thoughts. His heart is the anvil where he is daily hammering of sin. He is far from being a temple. He is a Sodom wherein are the heavings and boilings of lust. A sinner's heart is a common inn where all who will may lodge. It is not a temple but a pest house. He has the plague of the heart. But a godly man's heart is a sacred temple which God highly values and which he has promised to dwell in and revive, according to Isaiah 57 and verse 15. That doesn't sound like the preaching we hear today. We must understand the nature and the effects of sin. When I say, when we say that man is totally depraved, We mean that he is wholly defiled in all of his faculties and parts of his soul and body. The mind, the will, the heart, the body and the soul are all infected by sin. I want to issue a cautionary word lest some of you might think I'm taking this too far. Depravity, this doctrine of depravity, and may I say, this is a doctrine, it's a teaching, it is firmly written in the pages of Scripture. We call this hamartiology, the study of sin, the depravity of man. Uh, This matter does not mean that we are all as bad as we can be. That's not what this doctrine of depravity means. But it means that every part of our being is infected by sin. So some would say, but hang on, are you trying to tell me that my life right now is just like the life of a mass murderer? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying we're equally depraved, but the decay is different between different people. Some have done much grosser immorality. Some have gone to much deeper levels of sin and iniquity. But every part of our character in our natural estate is fully depraved. But the level of decay is different. Outside of Jesus Christ, we are all dead. Dead. Not partly alive. Not a spark of divine illumination exists there that one day can be ignited. We are dead, Ephesians 2 says. We need to understand, we need to understand that for ourselves so that we get a better understanding of the gospel. We also need to understand that for the world out there. It's no wonder our gospel when preached is rejected. Unless the Spirit of God illuminates the heart of that individual, they will never see or understand the gospel. You would never have seen or understood the gospel had it not been the Spirit of God who opened your eyes to believe it. Lest you think I am being too harsh this morning about this matter of sin, let me just read some verses for us. Just maybe take down the references. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The heart is deceitful Above all things and desperately sick, desperately wicked, the King James says, who can understand it? Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, Paul says, as I just referred to, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If we get a handle on those verses, we will see who we are truly in our own heart outside of Jesus Christ. Psalm 58 and verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies. Left to ourselves, we will delve deeper and deeper and deeper into sin and decay. Ephesians 4 and verse 18 says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Perhaps one of the most telling passages of scripture regarding the depravity of man is Romans 3, 12 to 18, which says this. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is up under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What a testimony to sin's disastrous effects in the life of a human being. Our text in Titus in chapter 3 and verse 3 says, For we ourselves, Paul says, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Colossians 1.21 says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So we ask the question this morning, why? Why do we need redemption? Because left to ourselves, we're like those of Genesis 6, 5 and 6, of whom it is written, the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the outworking of that was, God says, destroy them. Destroy them, they're gone, save eight that are in the ark. Everybody else, their thoughts are evil, continue. So depraved is man on his own that I must start again, says God. You see, if God had not stepped in with the plan of redemption, our fate would be just like those of Genesis 6, swept to destruction because of sin. You see, I... I'm okay, I'm not that bad. Well, let me just give you a quick summary of what the Bible says about those who know not the grace and love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Outside of God's redemption, the Bible says, I am dead in sin, lost, disobedient, unregenerate, depraved, a child of wrath, an outsider, a slave of Satan, a servant of sin, godless, Hopeless, defiled, unprofitable, vain, full of evil, unsaved, an enemy, deceived, under the condemnation of God and headed towards eternal destruction. We're in one of two camps here this morning. We either know this to be a reality and have turned to God from that state and trusted in the work of Jesus Christ 
And he's forgiven us and given us a new life. And we are thereby redeemed or we are in that category presently. And just because you attend does not mean for one moment that that is not you. Oh, friend, this morning, take inventory of your own self. Are these things a reality still or have you trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary to redeem you from that? You say, this is far too harsh. This is far too hard. The gospel is not an easy message. I am so tired. I am getting so frustrated with the message of the gospel that I hear preached today on YouTube and on the internet where people just say, you know what? God will overlook all of that. It's okay. Everything will be okay in the final analysis. God will forgive everyone. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God is holy and just and that he can't look on those who are disobedient and those who are unregenerate, those who are children of wrath but instead he gave his precious son as the means that they might be redeemed. That's the message that we need to hear. That's the message of our Easter Sunday service, that though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson and you're an enemy of God, they shall be like wool. Church, that's our message. If you're a redeemed individual, that's the message of redemption. Look at what I was. And now, look at what God has done. What a difference it makes when we paint sin to be as black as it really is when it comes to the glory of redemption. Does it not shine forth, which is what we're going to look at now? Does it not some like, like a star shine like the sun into our soul when we realize how blackened and evil we were? And let's see what Jesus did. Thirdly, Not just the necessity of redemption, but now having an understanding of what the scripture says about depravity. Now let's look at the execution of redemption. The execution. God executed this incredible message of salvation. And we're asking this question. How? How did redemption come about? There's many verses to which we could turn this morning. I'm not going to have us do that until we get to our final point. But let me add some scriptural verses here for you to take note of. How did redemption come about? I think the best answer to that question is in 1 John 4.14 where the Apostle John says, And we have seen and testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. How did it come about? The Father sent the Son to be the Saviour. Of the world. Now, please don't misunderstand that. That doesn't mean the whole world's going to be saved. That's not what that teaches at all. But the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Note this our redemption was first of all initiated by the Father, accomplished through the Son, and applied by the Spirit. The triune Godhead was involved every step of the way. Number one, it was the Father's idea before the world began to purchase a people for his own glory. Ephesians 1 verses 4 to 6. Did you know that God had intention of redeeming you? If you are a redeemed individual, if you are a saved person here this morning, that's because long before you were born, long before the earth existed, God chose you by sovereign grace for his supreme purposes without any worth in and of yourself in that to be his 
saved individual to be a part of his church and you say, I'm not worthy, you're right, neither am I. None of us are worthy. And we say, oh God, why did you select me? The answer of that is confided in the secret of the almighty God. We don't know why God chose us, but we know what he chose us for. His glory. His glory. The father's idea to purchase redemption. Secondly, it was the son who gave his life to make this purchase a reality in Ephesians 5 and verse 2. God said, I have an idea of redeeming people. And the son said, I'm the one who's going to be the means by which this is going to happen. And so he comes and he comes as a baby boy in a manger, taking on human flesh, growing as a man for the simple reason that he had to be human in order to die on the cross. And so he comes and he presents himself as the perfect offering for sin in our place. And so there, AD 30, AD 31, whatever the time frame exactly, the Son of God dies upon the cross of Calvary to purchase redemption. But that's not the end. That's not where the story ends. Then thirdly, it's the Spirit of God who then draws the sinner to himself. He opens the heart and they believe the gospel. And then he makes his abode within that creation and that sinful, depraved individual is given a new nature, a nature that is from God and how that changes everything. The old is past and the new has come. This is the reality of the redeemed. But in our focus of communion, we're looking at the Lord Jesus at whose table it is we come. He left the glories of heaven, John 17, 5 tells us. He took on human flesh, 1 Timothy 3, 16 says. He lived a sinless life, 1 Peter 2, 22 says. And he died as a substitute for all who believe on his name, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. How did redemption come about? By means of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter reminds us, that we were not redeemed with perishable things, gold, silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Peter 1, verse 18 to 19. So in this execution of redemption, we ask this question, which I've alluded to already. How then can I be redeemed? The answer to that is that there must be a spirit-illuminated recognition of my sinful state. You've heard me today talk about the depravity of sin, but you know what? That just rolls like water off a duck's back unless the Holy Spirit informs you of that reality. You say, yeah, that's nice. Okay, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. But unless the Spirit of God illuminates, there is nothing that I can do There is nothing that you can do for one another to help another person see the depravity apart from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the spirit must open the eyes of that person in recognition of their sinful state before a holy and a righteous God. So it begins with a spirit illuminated recognition of my sinful state. 
And then there must be a spirit-empowered turning away from sin. Notice that the spirit is involved in all of these things. He first illuminates the mind to the reality of our sinful state. And then he gives us the power to repent, to turn away from that sin and then turn unto God. And then the third thing that the spirit does in my redemption is he imparts to me the faith needed to believe in the gospel. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You say, what's the gift of God? Both the grace and the faith to believe in Jesus Christ. Redemption, salvation will be realized in the life of a sinner when their all is cast upon Jesus Christ. When their spiritual arms are wrapped tightly around the Saviour's neck and they hie to him for absolute refuge. It is an understanding that he took my place and I am his forever. Another helpful illustration. An orphaned boy was living with his grandmother when their house caught on fire. The grandmother trying to get upstairs to rescue the boy perished. In the flames, the boy's cries for help were finally answered by a man who climbed an iron drain pipe and came back down with the boy hanging tightly to his neck. Several weeks later, a public hearing was held to determine who would receive custody of the child. A farmer, a teacher and the town's wealthiest citizen all gave their reasons why they felt they should be chosen to give the boy a home. But as they talked, the lad's eyes remained focused on the floor. Then a stranger walked to the front and slowly took his hands from his pockets, revealing severe scars on them. As the crowd gasped, the boy cried out in recognition. This was the man who had saved his life. His hands had been burned when he climbed the hot pipe. With a leap, the boy threw his arms around the man's neck and held on for dear life. The other man silently walked away, leaving the boy and his rescuer alone. Those marred hands had settled the issue. The matter of redemption was completed when the Son of God took our place on the cross. And we recognized his work, his love, his forgiveness. And we clung to him for salvation. The proof that we have been redeemed is that we are still clinging to him for salvation. I'm asked on a semi-regular basis, how can I be assured of my salvation? The simplest answer is, are you still hanging on? Because if you're still hanging on, then you are his. Because only those who can hang on to the arms, to the neck of the Lord Jesus, though they go up and down, up and down through life's uh, battles and the difficulties that face us, the assurance of salvation is that I made a profession of faith back here, but I am still Hanging on. I'm still holding on to that blessed assurance because Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Blessed assurance is mine because I'm still clinging to my Redeemer. How can I be redeemed? There may well be those today who are in need of understanding more what it is to be redeemed. Please talk with me afterwards. Nothing is more important than settling that matter. 
both in the life of the believer and the unbeliever. Believers, we need to settle this matter. I don't mean settle it in that it needs to be done. I mean understand it and hang on to it and and cling to it for dear life because it is literally our life. In the closing moments of this message, the final point that I'd like us to look at before we partake together is not only the necessity of redemption, not only the execution of redemption, but now finally the application of redemption. And you say, you are doing well, Daniel. You've kept your messages fairly short. Well, there's only 10 points here, but I'm just going to read them. I want to ask this question. What then is the result of redemption? And how should this manifest itself in the believer's life? So understanding all of those things, perhaps those, there's those here who don't understand redemption. That last point was for you. This point, believer, is for you. This is, what does redemption do for me? What is it that it means? How shall my life look now that I am a redeemed one? We're going to look up just a couple of places in your Bible. So grab your Bible and please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14. We won't look them all up because we won't have time, but just a couple here. Colossians 1 and verse 14. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, Paul says, In whom we have redemption, there's our word, The forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. Number one, redemption is the forgiveness of sins. What does that mean? Well, it simply means this, that at the moment of your regeneration, come back next month for what that means. That's our final word, regeneration. At the moment of our salvation, our past sin, our present sin, And our future sin has been in its entirety forgiven. Why? Not because of some merit in me, but in the merit of Christ's righteousness, which he has put into my spiritual account and taken my sin and placed it upon himself. We call that double imputation. My sin imputed to the man on the cross and his glorious righteousness Imputed to me, my sin is gone. You say, do I still sin? Absolutely. Do you? Do I? We all do. But that sin and what it does no longer condemns us. Our sin is totally forgiven. Number two, Galatians chapter two, please. A couple of books back. And I guess this verse is at the very heart of redemption. Galatians chapter two and verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Redemption number two is the means of a new life in Christ. We died. We died. And our new life now 
is in Christ. Our new life is the life that Christ has imbued, empowered and given to us. That's the reality of where we live now. Redemption is living our new life in Christ, empowered by the Spirit of God. We are not what we used to be. We are a new creation. Redemption says, I bought you and made you my own. That's what Jesus Christ did. Thirdly, we won't turn to this one. But in 1 John 3.16, we are told that this redemption, this salvation, puts a whole new perspective in place. Now I will lay down my life, my life for the sake of the brethren. So the third thing here is redemption produces a self-surrender for other believers. When there is fighting, when there is problems and divisions in the church, there is a misunderstanding of redemption. Because redemption has brought us together in an incredible way, so much so that each of us must be willing to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's the new love, the new life, the new redemptive theme of our Christianity is that no longer are we different people. We're all one under God. We are a people that live for him, but together. So much so that when a situation occurs and there's a need, I'm prepared to even so much lay down my life for the brethren. That's what 1 John 3.16 tells us about redemption. Changes everything. I want you to turn back to Titus, please. Titus chapter 2, which was the passage we read at the very beginning. And we're almost there. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. Paul says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, iniquity, evil, sin. The fourth thing we note, about the application of redemption is that redemption frees us from lawlessness. Here's the reality of what this means. This means I don't have to sin anymore. You say, I thought we were never going to reach sinless perfection. We're not in this life, but it means that I am no longer enslaved by it. It means that I now, by the power of the Spirit of God, have the ability to overcome sin and temptation in my life day by day. That does not mean that I'm never going to sin again, but it means that there is no temptation that has taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. God is faithful and he will make a way of escape that you'll be able to bear it. The concept there is nothing is out there that you cannot overcome by the power of the Son of God and the Spirit of God. We are now new and empowered to no longer have to sin. We were slaves of sin. We will still sin, but we're no longer bound by sin. We're freed from lawlessness. There's a message that isn't taught much. We are called to righteous living. We're called to it. And we'll look at that in just a moment. The fifth thing in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, same passage, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Redemption makes us the purchased possession of God. Titus 2 and verse 14. I am no longer my own. I don't have any rights anymore. There's a lot of things about rights today, isn't there? Everybody wants rights for this and rights for that. The reality is that 
I have no rights except those which are given to me in Christ Jesus. I am his. I am bought with a price. That is the message of redemption. He has purchased me. I am a slave, a servant of God. Number six, redemption incites a zeal for good works. In verse 14, the Bible says here, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. The end of that verse says, who are zealous for good works. Let me ask you this. Are you zealous for good works? Are you longing and looking for an opportunity to serve the Lord by way of good works? You are not saved by good works, but you are saved unto good works. For by grace you've been saved, not, uh, not of yourselves. We know the Bible says that. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Next verse, for we are his workmanship created unto good works. That's the point of this. Now, as a Christian, people ought to look at your life and say, why do you always want to do what's right? Because I'm not my own. Because I am Jesus Christ's. And I am zealous for good works. I want to do this for him. I want to honor him because he is now my master and I am his. Let me give you just one more to actually consider in depth. The rest of them I'll read out for you. Uh, two more. Two more, please. Just two more. Number seven. Yeah, I've got to do number seven. Psalm 107 and verse two says this. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Number seven is redemption is the proclamation of the redeemed. Let me say that again. Redemption is the proclamation of the redeemed. What do I mean by this? I mean that the chorus of your life, brethren, the chorus of your Christianity is redemption. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child and forever I am. Redeemed, redeemed. That is the chorus of our life song now. I'm now His and my life is spent showing it and telling it to the world that they might understand what it is to be bought with a price. What it is to have sins forgiven and to know the hope of eternal life. That's my life. That's your life. That's our calling, our glory or to glory in Christ Jesus with our life. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And you know what the Bible says or what it doesn't say? It doesn't say let the bold redeemed of the Lord say so. It doesn't say let the outspoken ones like Daniel Chris say the redeemed. That's not what it says. It says let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Say so. Now, not everybody's going to be on the street corner bellowing at the top of their voice about redemption. But every one of us is called to preach the gospel of redemption. Are you doing that? Has redemption so impacted your life that you cannot but speak like the apostles? I just, I've just got it. I know you don't want me to, but I have to just tell you this. Look at what God has done for me. Let me read eight and nine to you. And then we'll finish with number 10. Eight, redemption demands the glorification of God with our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6.20. Our bodies are his, the flesh is his. Redemption demands the glorification of God with our bodies. 
Number nine is redemption is in fact an entrance into the family of God. Galatians 4, 5, we're adopted, the Bible says. Redemption is the same as adoption, entrance into the family of God. And then, if you didn't get all those, you can get a copy of the message or the notes. Number 10, turn with me in closing, Revelation chapter 5. I just can't skip this one, and it'll be just a couple of minutes. Revelation chapter 5. No, I'm going to stop myself from giving you all the context here. We're just going to read verse 9. Your homework is to read the rest of the chapter. All right, verse 9 and 10. Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sang a song, they sang a new song, just before it says the prayers of the saints, etc. We're talking about in heaven and the Lamb. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, this is Christ, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people For God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Redemption will be the theme in eternity. Redemption will be the theme in eternity. Worthy, worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. You ransomed, you redeemed the people for God for all eternity. You know what will be our theme? We sang it before. Redeeming love will be our theme and shall be till the day I die. That's not quite true. You know why? Because it's redeeming love will be our theme from now until all eternity. That would be better. We might change that. Because it's true. Redeeming love, redemption is going to be the theme forever. We may as well get some practice in the song of redemption in this life. Because you're going to spend all eternity talking about this matter of redemption. It's the forgiveness of sin. It's the means of a new life in Christ. It produces surrender towards other believers. It frees us from lawlessness. It makes us the purchased possession of God. It incites a zeal for good works. It's the proclamation of those who've been redeemed. It demands the glorification of God with our bodies. It's an entrance into the family of God, and it will be the theme for all eternity. I hope you understand and appreciate the magnitude, the glory, the majesty of this incredible word, redemption. And the theme that we will sing forevermore. Lord Jesus, we have labored on this theme for some time this morning. I trust not too long. And I trust that uh, in looking at this glorious term, that our hearts are filled on two different levels, filled with great sorrow of who we are outside of Christ in order that we would be filled with great joy in knowing what the fullness of this reality means. Lord, I pray that the outworking of this time in your word today would invoke a greater passion for good works, a greater passion to serve you, a greater passion to preach the message of redemption to a lost and dying world of whom each of us once were apart. Lord, as we 
partake of these emblems before us, let us not do so out of duty, but out of delight. Lord, cause us, if necessary, to fall on our faces before you even now. Lord, to put issues right with one another, should there be some offences in our midst. Lord, help us to refrain from partaking if we're not a member of your family or if we're not prepared to deal with the sin in our life. But, oh God, may we be prepared to do that. That today your bride in this place, this local assembly, would be clean, pure, chaste before you. And, Lord, we do these things as your word tells us in remembrance of you.